Good evening. It's very good to see you here tonight. Thanks for remembering that we're doing this. Katie, do you mind pulling those doors? Thanks. You ready, Mike? <laughs> Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ. It's a glorious thing to know that you, at such massive cost, offer us forgiveness of our sins and the possibility to be adopted by the Father as co-heirs with you. Lord, help us tonight with the very difficult task of seeing the water that we swim in and noticing it for what it is. Help us, Lord, to rejoice at your glorious offering of what it's like to live with you and to bend our lives toward you and your will and your goodness and your grace. In your name we pray. Amen. If you brought along a copy of the Bible, please find the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you didn't bring a copy of the Bible, then um, find someone near you that you've been wanting to get very close next to and see if you can share with them. Deuteronomy chapter 6. fourth book of the Bible, right there near the beginning. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. This is not a different God than we see revealed in the New Testament. And this is not the same God changed from what he looks like in the New Testament. We have to obliterate all of these ideas in our minds that when we read of the love of God in one place, that something about the anger of God is somehow a different God or God has changed. Now think about the massive extremes described in these six verses. On the one hand, wealth and prosperity, right? Houses full of all good things that you did not fill, cisterns you didn't dig, vineyards and olive trees you did not plant, you will eat and be full. This is a description of extreme prosperity in the ancient agrarian world. That's one hand. On the other hand, verse 15, the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. The key issue between enjoying the gifts of prosperity and facing the destructive wrath of God is your memory. That's the fulcrum. Notice the end of verse 11. When you eat and are full, take care lest you forget. If you forget, swings over to all that bad stuff. Now this weird dynamic 
God rescuing Israel from slavery in Egypt, then experiencing the gifts of God, the prosperity and the flourishing, but forgetting that all of that prosperity and flourishing is because of God, because he rescued them and he gave it to them. This whole dynamic, it comes up over and over and over in the book of Deuteronomy. Again and again, as Israel is standing on the edge of the promised land, here is Moses. The book of Deuteronomy is Moses preaching his last sermons to Israel. He doesn't get to go into the promised land with Israel. He's kind of summing up everything. And over and over and over, he brings up this dynamic. He brings up this idea that when they prosper economically, they will be tempted to forget God. Go to chapter 8. Notice verse 17. Here it is. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. So here we have God warning Israel that as the years go by, their prosperity will tempt them to forget Who gave them the wealth? And isn't that really easy? When you work really hard for a lot of years and you look at all the things your work has produced, isn't it easy to begin to think, look what I've done. Look what the lazy people have not done. Isn't this a very natural kind of move? That's the number one thing God says here. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power, the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Now, can't we understand that? Can't we understand how easy it is to forget that all of your ability to produce wealth is because of the generous grace and kindness of your creator, who is also your redeemer? That's one issue. But there is something else going on here. It is not only that prosperity tempts us to overestimate our own power and thus to forget God's power behind our power, It's also that prosperity tempts us to forget the purpose of our stuff. Prosperity tempts us to forget the real power, and it tempts us to forget the purpose of our stuff. Look at the verse again. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten, and here it is, have gotten me this. Do you see the two mistakes? One is, I did it, and the other is, it's mine. Both of those are the flaws. In other words, prosperity tempts us to think, I did it and it's mine. And both of those are manifestations of forgetting God. Forget God and it will lead to the disobedience bound up in a self-centered view of your possessions. Me, my, my. So here are the Israelites, fresh out of college, New degree, right on the verge of economic power. They're about to do what they've been training 40 years for, which is about how long I was in college, it seems like. (laughs) And God says, no, you're about to go in there, and you're going to put all this training to work, and you're going to get money from it, and you're going to face two temptations. You're You're going to start to think, because of how hard you work, that you're... You're the source of the wealth. And you're also going to start to think, because of how hard you work for it, that it's yours. Pride and selfishness. Now, that's a very difficult challenge that Israel is about to face as they move into the promised land. Now, here's the good news, though. Fortunately, God gives Israel more than advance warning. He also gives them a fun solution. That's the best, isn't it? Like, don't you like, those of you who are parents, when you leave home and you're warning your kids? Don't you love when you've got a really fun solution to the bad stuff that they're going to be tempted to do? He gives Israel a solution which is good. It's good for us because we struggle with these same struggles, so we need to hear the solution. But 
it's not only good, it's fun, it's practical, and it's powerful. And there are three aspects to the solution God gives to Israel right after they graduate college and are about to make money. First of all, the solution to pride and greed is economic-oriented worship. Economically-oriented worship. Go to chapter 26. Deuteronomy chapter 26, and I'm going to read a fairly long section, verses 1 through 11. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and you live in it, notice both, God's going to give it, but they got to work, they got to take possession of it. You shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest, who is in office at that time, and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord. This is what we do every Sunday. Those of us who worship in this church, every Sunday, we come to worship and it culminates in a moment where we bring our tithes and they go from your hand to my hand in a basket that we set before the altar. Right here. That's what we're doing. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. Here's what you say. It's the only place in the Bible where God puts into the mouth of his people the exact words they're supposed to say in worship. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid us on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place, and he gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. That's what they're to say. Sort of like we said this morning. I pray this, everything comes from God, and we say, and we give it back to you. And notice next. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So notice this is worship with money right in the middle of it. And notice verse 11. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house and to the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. In other words, we must bring our money right into the heart of our worship. If we worship without giving money, it might be easier, but we're missing something fundamental. We are to take our money, our tithe, the top 10%, right off the top, and we take it to worship, and in the midst of worship, it's not a weird move when worship is climaxing and then suddenly we take an offering. That's not a weird move. That's like reaching right into the guts of your life, and you bring in the, the, one of the most important things in your life. That cost you the most, cost you blood, sweat, and tears, and you're bringing it. Notice verse 13. You shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house. <laughs> 10% of your money is sacred. You better get it out of your house. And how do we do that? By bringing it in our worship and rehearsing the story of our salvation. So think about how those of you who go to incarnation, um, after the sermon, we rehearse the story of our salvation in the Apostles' Creed. We bring our money, and then we rehearse it again in all these prayers we pray at the Lord's table. Every Israelite farmer was to declare openly that their ancestors were wandering nobodies and oppressed slaves, and that the only reason they weren't back on Pharaoh's never-ending assembly line was the lavish grace of God who rescues his people in might and power, and here on holy ground, they do that with their money. In a, in a visible ritual reminder that the abundance they experience is all God's gift. 
Now, we saw last week that giving to God jams a spoke in the relentless wheel of greed. That giving is a practical, concrete way to cast down money from the throne of our hearts. You can't be passive about money. you got to grab it by its horns and kick it into place. Through giving, God changes our hearts. Now, this is the first practice that is essential to not forgetting God in the midst of prosperity. This is the first practice that is essential, economically oriented worship. This is, how, this is the first of three solutions he gives them to resisting the stickiness of greed and pride and selfishness with our money. But it's not enough. In fact, while it's primary, it's insufficient. Greed is far more powerful. you got to come at it from more than that angle. And here's where it gets really interesting and fun. Not only must our worship involve our money, if we want to escape the death spiral of forgetting God and falling into greed, our worship must culminate in a feast. Economically oriented worship culminating in a feast. Now that sounds crazy. Because if I was inventing a kind of like solution to the craziness of American consumerism, I'm not sure I would say consume. (laughs) Feast. That's what feasting is. It's a consume. I didn't expect this to be part of the solution. But notice verse 10. Deuteronomy 26, verse 10. And behold, now I bring, you say, the first fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me, and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. Now look at verse 11. And rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house and the Levite and the sojourners among you. Now here's the trick. We've just jumped right into Deuteronomy. If you had read Deuteronomy from the first verse all the way to here, you would know that verse 11, rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given you, is actually a code word that they've already defined. It's have a party. Have a party with the money, the fruit you just brought. This is, this is a really wonderful solution, all right? This gets good. Last week was hard. This week is fun. So the solution to greed and selfishness was go to worship, bringing your tithe, and then eat it. Remember, their tithe was like their first fruits. Like bring your best little lamb. Give it to God, and then he gives it back. And eat it in his presence. Joy-filled Feasting. So in order to resist a crazy consumer culture, economically oriented worship that culminates in joy-filled feasting. Now, you might not catch that just reading it there, but go back to chapter 14. Look at verse 22. You shall tithe... All the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. This is remarkable. You bring it to God and then eat it before him, And that's how you learn to fear him. Now, catch this next part. If you live too far. Like if if it's going to take you a couple of weeks and Sean's bringing his onions. And they're going to get all smushy or something. I don't know. Um, if, If the way is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe. Look what he says do. Verse 25. Turn it into money. And bind up the money in your hand. Make the trip, spend the money, get this teenagers, this is awesome. Listen to these words. Spend money on whatever you desire. You like ox? Buy an ox. You think sheep are tastier? Buy a sheep. Wine? Now this next part, 
wasn't in my Bible growing up. (laughs) Or strong drink. Not the watered down stuff. Not the stuff that typically when the Bible talks about it, it forbids it. And if it doesn't forbid it, it warns against liquor. But here it says, is that what you desire? Buy it. And then look what he says next. Whatever your appetite craves. And then it says, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance. Now think about this. In a culture in which meat was rarely consumed, God is telling them, pull out all the stops. Steak, dinner, wine, strong drink. God is so serious about his people feasting with joy before him that he commands it. He doesn't just leave it up to the party animals. Even the frugal Mennonites are commanded to do it. And when you read the book of Deuteronomy, you'll see that this is not an anomaly. Over and over, Yahweh commanded Israel, if they wanted to resist greed, party hard before him. Now that's the second part of the solution. Now stay with me and we're going to put all of this together. But first we've got to pick the third part of the solution. Remember we're dealing with the solution to greed. Last week we looked at giving, jams a spoke. This week we're, we're recognizing that one of the ways we fall into greed is we forget that it's God's power behind our ability and we forget that everything we've worked for isn't ours, it's His. And the antidote to that, the antidote to the idolatry of money last week, two weeks ago, was giving. The antidote to falling into this stuff this week is economically oriented worship that culminates in feasting. That's the first two. Number three. When it comes to our money and our prosperity, if it's going to be stopped from climbing up onto the throne of our hearts, then not only do we need to have this kind of worship and this kind of feasting, but there's an interesting thing that happens. These parties that God commands Israel to have, he's actually very careful not to fill in the blank about the party. He gives very few specific kind of parameters for the party, other than the ones we just read. Now, don't don't get frugal on me, he says. Go for it. Other than that, there's really only one other stipulation. See, he wants people who know how to throw a party to use their creativity and to say, how does this party work for us in our culture, in our place, in our time, in this environment today? The only place where God gets down into the weeds of party planning is who's on the guest list. All through Deuteronomy, God commands his people to counteract the temptation to forget him by giving money as a part of worship that periodically culminates in lavish parties, and he lets Israel pick their best party planners to fill in the details. But when it comes to the guest list, God makes very specific commands. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 12. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God. This is one of those worship services that culminate in a feast. Not a boring feast, like foot stomping, roaring good time, like in the Hobbit kind of feast. You, notice the guest list. Notice he doesn't say how to rejoice, he just tells them, go for it. But then he gets really specific on the guest list. You, your sons, your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, and the Levite that is within your town since he has no portion or inheritance 
with you. Now go over to chapter 14, verse 29. Verse 28, at the end of every three years, you bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year. Lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the like immigrant, the fatherless, the widow, who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Go to chapter 16, verse 11. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. There it is again, that code word for worship that culminates in these riotous parties. You and your son and your daughter and your male servant, and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the father. Aren't you like, come on, God, you already told us this. He keep, he, he's like a broken record on the, on the guest list. Go to chapter 16, verse 14. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant, and your female servant, and the Levite and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns. Do you get the impression they might like have a predisposition to changing the guest list? <laughs> Go to chapter 26. Where we, we looked just a little bit earlier, notice verse 11. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you, you and your house, and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. Now, all right, let's do this. Imagine that you are a moderately successful farmer in ancient Israel. And you depend on rain and good weather for your economic success. So you hire immigrants who are passing through Israel to help out on the farm. And you have servants who also work your fields because last season your neighbors fell into hard times. And you didn't just give a handout. You gave a loan and now they're repaying it with work. Your children and your spouse work in the fields alongside you. And several times a year the Lord requires you to stop working. To take your eyes off the family business on which your livelihood depends. And he commands you to take everybody. Now, you're going to forget who to take. You know how you are. You're just going to take, like, your favorites. You're just going to take the non-critical employees, but the plant's going to keep running. You're going to not take the day laborers. I mean, do they deserve this all-expense-paid trip? Now, remember, they're traveling a long way. This is expensive. Not only is it expensive, but you got to stop production. And you take all of these people, including your servants and your entry-level employees and the disinherited widows and the orphans who live in your community and even the immigrant who has just walked into your neighborhood. No, Mr. Everybody Israelite, you aren't allowed to come and represent the community. You have to bring the community. You cannot leave behind the bottom Workers to grind it out because this feast is for everybody. Over and over and over, he said, you got to bring them all. Including those who can't afford it. And so everyone comes. And there before Yahweh, every person, the poor, the middle class. I didn't really have middle class then, but you get the point. The upper class, every Israelite gets to feast. And they're all reminded that all of them come from slave stock. That all of their abundance is a sheer gift from God. And they feast together. And you know what? If you've ever read through the book of James, this is what he's going on about when he's hammering at the rich and at the poor. What happens in these feasts? The wealthy remember that they are dependent. And what do the poor remember? The poor, the debt slave, the orphan, the widow, the disinherited, they remember it won't always be this way. They remember the year of Jubilee is coming. Liberation from their economic indebtedness will occur. Now I want to pause here and talk for just a minute about socialism and communism. Because it could sound like what I'm arguing for is not capitalism. Especially those who are raw from the critiques of capitalism. 
Socialism is a system in which the means of production are collectively owned. Communism is where the means of production and the means of consumption are collectively owned. In our current two-party political system, with all the shrill rhetoric going on, it can be hard to hear a critique of the current version of capitalism without assuming the person critiquing it is proposing socialism. Because those of us who grew up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s were so used to two possibilities. Communism or capitalism. And communism has failed. And so we're accustomed that a critique of one is a presumption of the other. But here's the deal. Absolute equality of wealth and income is not the goal of Scripture. So see, we're dealing with prejudices on both sides. The poor are prejudiced against the wealthy in our country. And the wealthy are prejudiced against the poor. I mean, I'm not saying every single person, but it's really easy to find these kind of examples. And so it's easy for some to argue for equality of wealth or income, but that is not what this stuff is saying. It's easy to hear me hammering away on this and just kind of assume that it's an assault on capitalism. That's not what I'm doing here. Equality of wealth is unhelpful. It requires the abolishing of private property. And private property is a fundamental advantage because it produces greater productivity and order and social peace. Communism is a failed experiment. That's not what I'm arguing for here. What we've got to see is that our current version of capitalism is not the only version possible. We've got to recognize that we are living in a new version of capitalism. A, a capitalism totally unmoored from the proper ethical restraints that can restrain the beast of greed. And we've got to have the imagination to see fresh alternatives. We need to see the Bible's critique of the way our unrelentingly competitive economic environment is shaping us to believe if I don't look out for myself, no one else will. The current version of capitalism, which I think is helpful to distinguish by calling it consumer capitalism, has done more to diminish community than any of the other isms we like to assault, like individualism, Secularism, scientism, humanism. Look at it this way. When consumer capitalism rules everything, it dissolves locally owned hospitals, locally owned banks, newspapers, grocery stores, and restaurants, and that's bad for community. 23 years ago, Alan Ehrenholt wrote a remarkable book entitled The Lost City, subtitled The Forgotten Virtues of Community in America. In this book, he looks at Chicago in the 1950s in a different moment of capitalism. And he shows through remarkable economic and sociological analysis, he shows how the very act of shopping in Chicago in the 1950s was embedded in the web of long-term relationships between the customer and the merchant. Relationships that were more important than the price of a particular item at a particular point in time. The sense of permanence that bound politicians to organizations or corporations to community, it reached all the way down to the most mundane transactions of neighborhood commercial life. Neither communism nor socialism are viable alternatives as far as I can tell. But we've got to see that the current consumer capitalism 
is not something we should settle for. And to do that, we need to take serious the narratives of Scripture. These enormous resources God has given us in Scripture and a key insight that we need to reflect on as a community and take serious is that our King calls us to aim our economic lives first at the community. Now let let me draw this to a conclusion and then I'll spend the last part of the time being practical. Here's a key question I think we need to grapple with. What is the goal of your economic life, your habits of working, producing, consuming, and investing? What's the goal of it? Our current consumer capitalism subtly but persistently shapes and educates us to orient our economic production, uh, consuming, and investing, and working to orient it towards self, to aim our economic lives first at our own consumptions. I mean, we probably include a spouse or aging parents or our children in our economic goals. And we certainly would like to tithe when we can, but at the end of the day, our current consumer-oriented economy trains us to start with ourselves and our family. Make sure you've got enough for yourself, your family, however you define it, and then hopefully you'll have some leftovers and you can give those to the needy. In our U.S. cultural climate, we tend to think of society as fundamentally individuals and community is a bonus. But for God's people in the Old Testament, it was the opposite. It starts the other way around. In the Bible, God shows us community is essential for the individual. It cannot be secondary. It cannot be a bonus. In God's kingdom, we are called to aim our economic lives at the community for our own sake and the sake of everyone else. So when it comes to money, we need to begin to think that we are not merely a collection of individuals looking out for the best way for each of us, for ourselves, to get what we want. As Christians, we belong to the body of Christ, and our King has called us to bend our economic lives toward community, to aim our economic lives at community. Now, that's a great idea, but how? Well, remember... The Bible gives us an answer to that, a three-part solution. Worshiping God that is economically oriented, culminating in feasting with everyone. So we're talking about a particular kind of party, a party before the face of God that's really diverse in its invitation list. It has a diversity of socioeconomic groups. Now, Tertullian one of the early church fathers. He lived something like uh, 155 to 240 AD. He famously said, whatever the church spends on parties benefits the needy. Now, what's the assumption behind that? The assumption behind that is that there's a diverse economic group at the party. Now, that brings up a problem for us in America. Robert Putnam wrote a a really famous book, Bowling Alone. He shows in this book that in America, we are increasingly likely to live in all poor or all rich neighborhoods. And we're becoming increasingly less likely to live in communities where a person from one socioeconomic group has a real chance for a deep, intimate friendship with a person from a different socioeconomic group. That's different than bumping into each other, but real friendship, where your lives overlap multiple times. Let me put it in a very uncomfortable way. It is growing very difficult for rich Christians and poor Christians to be real friends in America today. And that's not always the case. I know there are exceptions, and I know there are very real, helpful, and wonderful exceptions to that in our city and in this room. But the makeup of communities in America is doing this. 
The sad fact is that Sunday morning remains one of the most segregated hours of the week, not just racially, but economically. And again, I know there are exceptions and we should recognize them and give thanks for them and talk about them. Let's talk about our church. In our church, there are wonderful stories that go against the national trend toward isolation in class enclaves. So many people that I know at Incarnation are amazing me in ways they're reaching outside of their class and reaching across class lines and working for real relationships. And yet, we have not captured the full economic and racial diversity of these biblical feasts. Not yet. So I want to start with some applications for our church. If you come from another church, you're on your own. (laughs) Then I'm going to talk about the houses we live in and how we can apply it in our houses. First, our church. I want to start with some questions. Really practical. When does our church eat together? Not this symbolic meal. But when do we actually like pass the collard greens or the ribs or whatever? What's that thing they eat in East Rockingham that's scrapple? Okay, here's the second question. Who comes? When our church really eats real meals together, who's there? Third question. Who brought the food? Who contributes? Fourth question, who receives the food? How could our church parties become places where everyone gives, everyone receives, and everyone is welcome? What would that require? So by the grace of God, through the long, glorious labors of David Cooper and Esther Good and others at Lineweaver, we're beginning to have people from Lineweaver worship with us every Sunday. Will they be eating with us? And will they be bringing a contribution? Or will it be a soup kitchen? Will it be a real potluck? Are you willing for it to be a real potluck? Now, when I think about these questions, I'm encouraged because Ernie and Katrina Dita live in our church, in our city and go to our church. They've helped us with this. I'm encouraged when I think about Easter coming up. We're really going to eat together as a church. Think about what we're going to do on Easter. We're going to worship God culminating in a feast. One of the problems with the way we do worship is the Lord's Supper is not a full meal. And do you get the impression that in these Old Testament passages, it was a full-on meal? And you know in the New Testament, it was a full-on meal. One of our problems is that we, we, we don't need to settle for this. We've got to creatively find ways that we will worship culminating in full meals. We've got Easter coming. We've got this chance. But we need to do more. We need to build into our church a rhythm of feasting that brings together real worship and real dinner. With scripture reading and foot stomping singing where everybody can bring an instrument or at least some homemade shaker and when possible have the Lord's Supper not just as a pointer but as a full supper. We're going to try to do this at Pentecost at Incarnation. We're going to move our worship service to Lindy and Chris Jenkins' vineyard in Luray. And we're going to have a worship service culminating in a meal. And we've got to figure out how to do this regularly. Easter is good. Pentecost is a great opportunity. I think we need to keep finding ways in our liturgical calendar to flesh this out. Here's a cool story. From a friend of mine, he's, he's part of a church in Memphis, and they developed a way of doing this at Advent. 
A couple of churches um, committed to change the way they're doing Christmas in Memphis. They committed to doing these things. For Christmas, they were going to worship more fully, spend less, give more, and love more. Called the Advent Conspiracy. So my friend from this church and this other church, about a hundred of them cram into an Irish pub every Advent. I'm sure they've talked to the owner. I hope so. And they take over the singing um, and they sing raucous Christmas carols in the public pub and they raise thousands of dollars to fund the digging of wells in parts of the world that desperately need clean water. And people who don't, they don't close down the pub for it. People who don't know Jesus who just showed up for a drink, they hear this and they see this. This is what we need. We need these creative ways that worship and feasting are reunited for a rich diversity of socioeconomic groups. All right, now what about the places where we live? We need to bring this into our homes. And I'm so impressed by how many people in our church invite people into their house for Christmas and Thanksgiving. I grew up that Christmas and Thanksgiving were family holidays. We went to worship, and then we went home and celebrated family. And we loved our family. But when I came here, I learned that the strength of family is a gift. And that it's, first of all, a holiday where we're supposed to open out to the world. And there are so many people in our church who bring people into the richness of their own Thanksgivings and Christmas. Now, what if? you considered in your apartment or your dorm or your home having a regular meal once a week, once a month, where you welcomed people from a different economic class than yourself. Different ethnic groups than yourself. And what if you didn't like do this like southern hospitality thing where you did everything? But, but you encourage them to bring their food to share, to share with you. What if, what if you found people who have a different style of cooking and you said, will you teach me how to do that? Will you, will you bring some of that and I'll bring some of my favorite foods? Potlucks are better than soup kitchens. They give dignity. Look, if there are not regular moments throughout the year where you're sitting down at your table and there's somebody different than you, then you got work to do. Now think about the enormous practicality of what God did. God is countering greed with who sits at your table. So we don't have to leave it up in this rarefied atmosphere of, oh, I want to fight greed. No, we fight it by giving generously and feasting diversely. These are really practical tools that God gives us. Now in many ways, this might seem the least economic of all the sessions we're going to do. But here's the deal. Next week, we're going to talk about a really hard thing. Relearning to think about our work as an orientation that takes the poor into consideration. And then the week after that, we're going to deal with the perennially disenfranchised. And it's going to be hard. But the, the issue is this. What we're going to talk about over the next several weeks will only work if it flows out of real, diverse, local community. Where we are radically committed to loving in practical ways all people. Here's what I'm trying to say. Every road to the economy of the kingdom runs through the creation of community. That's why consumer economics is so terrible. It's destroying community. I can buy things on Amazon without a relationship with anybody. Could it be that the addiction to buying things on Amazon, that the disembodied nature of purchasing has some kinship to pornography and the disembodied commodification of sex. Now, I'm not saying that it's terrible to do it, but I'm saying that our society is disembodying all the relationships and we've got to wake up to a very serious price we're paying for. It. Now, 
the starting point for laboring with God for a flourishing community is to resist all of that and to find ways to create community. And God's starting point for creating community is who eats together. Feasts give us an easy to begin yet essential starting point for becoming a community capable of demonstrating the bounty and the security and the joy of God's kingdom. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to focus like a laser on issues of justice and poverty. But as one advocate for the homeless, activist for the homeless, Ed Loring says, while justice is critical, supper is essential. See, you can work for justice on these big levels, but supper is about your neighborhood. We have to resist statism and marketism, which is destroying local communities by moving everything out. We don't need to beg our federal government. We need to learn how to retake control of a local economy. Marlon Foster, an African-American pastor and nonprofit leader who lives, works, and worships in a low-income neighborhood, was asked what it took to lead a church that truly welcomed the poor. And you know what his answer was? He said, it really boils down to who's eating at your table at your house. I think That as the church of the incarnation, what it looks like on Sunday morning is probably what it looks like on Tuesday night in our homes. And the answer is going to start with us finding some really concrete, practical ways to reach across the hermetically sealed class lines. And as we do that, it's not who is welcome, and it's even more than who's welcome to eat at your table. It's who's welcome to eat from your table and to bring food to your table. And so we've seen tonight in God's solution, his solution to the easy temptations of pride and greed is a fun solution. Now let me talk to the teenagers. Don't answer out loud. This is a preacher question. Does your lunch table look any different than what I've just accused the adults of. When you look at your lunch table, is it a, because when I look at you right now, it's a bunch of white people, middle class white people. Is that who you're eating with regularly? See, all of us have a role to play in this. Meals play a role in shaping our hearts and minds to aim the whole of our lives at the family of God rather than our own agendas and security. We must go out of our way and learn how to eat together again. All right.